0: a trip on a plane the other day just wishing that i could get out then a man next to me saw a book in my hand asked me what it was about so i settled back in my seat a bestseller i said a history a mystery in one then i opened up the book and began to read from matthew mark luke and john He was born of a virgin one holy night in the little town of Bethlehem. Angels gather round Him underneath the stars singing praises to the Great I Am. He walked on the water, healed the lame and made the blind to see again. For the first time here on earth, we learned that God could be a friend. And though He never ever did a single thing wrong, the angry crowd chose Him. Then they walked down the road and died on the cross That was the end of the beginning That's not a new book, that's a Bible, he said And I've heard it all before I've tried religion, shame and guilt and I don't need it anymore It's superstition, made up tales, just to help the weak to survive. Let me read it again, I said, but listen closely, this is gonna change your life. He was born of a virgin, one holy night in the little town of Bethlehem. Angels gather round him underneath the stars, singing praises to the great I Am. He walked on the water, healed the lame, and made the blind to see again. For the first time here on earth, we learned that God could be a friend, and though He never ever did a single thing wrong, the angry crowd chose Him, then He walked down the road and died on the cross, and that was the end of the beginning. Smile, what more could there be? He's dead. You said they hung him, they put nails in his hands, and a crown of thorns on his head. I said I'll read it again, but this time there's more. I believe that this is true. His death wasn't the end, the beginning of life has completed any you, don't you see? He did all this for you. He was born of a virgin, one holy night in the little town of Bethlehem. All the angels sang His song, singing praises to the great I Am. He walked on the water, healed the lame, made the blind to see. For the first time here on earth, don't you know that God could be a friend? Though he never ever did a single thing wrong He was the one the crowd chose Then he walked and he died But three days later Three days later Three days later
1: Chapter Three, Colossians chapter three. My, what a week we've had in our country. It's been a very difficult week in, in many ways, of course, with the bombing in Boston and fire in West Texas poison being mailed to the president and other government officials. We sometimes wonder uh, what's going to happen, but we have to stop and consider that the Lord is in control. We have nothing to fear, that he is still in control, no matter what may happen in this world. And so this morning we come with confidence before the Lord, but yet we need a fresh touch from the Lord. I'm going to step off in it this morning because really rather than preaching, I guess I'm going to be meddling this morning because we're talking about husbands and wives. It's already been pointed out to me that there's more in the outline under the women's section than there is the men's section. My answer to that was that men have a much shorter attention span And therefore, I can't give them as much information at one time, else they'd be totally, totally confused. Uh, You'll also need to be turning back to uh, Ephesians chapter 5 in just a moment that Brother Bobby read from this morning. A man man once asked... uh, Is old Mr. Smith a Christian? The answer was given, I don't know, I've never lived with him. There's a lot of truth in that. The real test of whether or not your Christianity is all talk is seen by those who live with you. Beginning in verse 18, instructions are directed to Christians who want to live as Christians within their home and we find three sets of instructions directed to the family wives and husbands in verses 18 and 19 children and parents in verses 20 and 21 and servants and masters in verses 22 through the sixth verse of chapter 4 and these three sets of instructions will direct our thoughts for the next 3 weeks as we begin to look at that those relationships First, we look at verses 18 and 19, which has to do with the relationship between a Christian husband and a Christian wife. It's important to remember that these are the characteristics of a Christian marriage. If you try to impose these standards in a non-Christian marriage, you're going to find it very difficult indeed. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. I'm sure that you are aware that the institution of marriage is being constantly put down in our society today. Not only are more marriages than ever ending in divorce... But we are, told, we are told that marriage is no longer a viable institution for our contemporary culture. More and more couples are choosing to simply live together without any commitment to get married. We want to take it to its greatest extreme. Marriage is no longer even viewed as exclusively a relationship between a man and a woman. It's to those kinds of times, though that the Apostle Paul was writing. First of all, I want you to look with me at the command to the wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, there are perhaps no more inflammatory words in the whole New Testament than those. Whenever one looks at the biblical instructions about marriage, someone is sure to say, well, those instructions were only the cultural preferences of that day. Not only is that not true, just the opposite is true. So let's take a look at the state of marriage in Paul's day and look first of all at the cultural context of this passage. It's hard for us to understand how different and difficult the status of women was when this letter was written. Paul's instructions concerning marriage were not the norm. In fact, they were a radical departure from the norm. The venerable Bible scholar William Barclay gives us some insight on that. He says, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing, a possession of her husband, just as much as his house, his flocks, and his material goods. She had no legal rights whatsoever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights whatever in the institution of a divorce. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone even to go to the market. She lived in the women's apartments and did not join her men, folks, even for meals. From her, there was demanded complete servitude and chastity. But her husband could go out as much as he chose, and he could enter into as many relationships outside marriage as he liked without incurring any stigma. Under both Jewish and Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties belong to the wife. Now let's look at that principle of submission. To get the complete picture, we need to turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 and look at verse number 22. Here in this letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul writes, wives... Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, I want to touch for a few moments on what this does and does not say about submission and In reality, one of the reasons that I take so much time with this is because this is the part that is very difficult uh, for many women today. First of all, we need to understand that submission is voluntary. It says, wives, submit yourselves to. In the Greek, it is a term that it means that it is entirely voluntary. It means to subject oneself. Now, if we look a little bit further into the text, we'll see in verse 20 with the children and verse 22 with the servants, they are told to obey. But nowhere does it say, and I hate to tell you, men, does it say that women must obey their husbands. That's a misinterpretation of this phrase. Submitting is something that the wife chooses to assume. The husband is nowhere authorized to put his wife in subjection. Much of the disfavor of this passage has to do with husbands who have little or no right to do so, quoting this verse to their little woman and telling them they must submit to him. Perhaps no scripture is quoted more during arguments than this one. But men, I want you to notice that nowhere does it say husbands command your wives to submit. In reality, what we find is that Paul speaks to both husbands and wives and asks each of them to work on their attitudes. Even abusive behavior by husbands has been justified on the basis of the principle of submission. But let's be clear, physical or emotional abuse of a spouse is unacceptable in any marriage, much less a Christian marriage. Not only is submission voluntary, submission is mutual. To really get the context of what Paul is saying in those verses, we have to back up to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. Almost all the problems that arise from the call to submission are resolved if we understand the context of the passage is mutual submission. Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This is spoken to both the husband and the wife. So many of the problems of the application of the principle of submission have to do with the fact that we wrongly interpret this as a struggle over power in the marriage relationship, it becomes all about who's in charge, the husband or the wife, and the answer is neither. This is not about one person being the boss and the other person being the servant. The correct answer to that question is that Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the head. He's the head of every marriage, just as he's head of the church. Wives learn to submit to their husbands. Listen, men. Wives learn to submit to their husbands from watching their husbands submit to the Lord. It should go without saying that any man who does not love and submit himself to the Lord has no right to expect his wife to submit herself to him. Now, men, you knew this was coming, so ultimately it's your fault. If your wife is unwilling to be submissive to you, it may be your fault because you're not more submissive to the Lord. Submission not only is mutual, submission does not mean inferior. Paul's counsel on the relations between husband and wife is interpreted by some to mean that the wife must knuckle under and do homage to her husband as he ascends to some kind of marital throne. That kind of relationship, of course, was ridiculed on the legendary Archie Bunker television show, in one episode, Edith thought that she would experiment experiment with some fancier cuisine, and she fixed her husband a souffle instead of his regular eggs and bacon. Needless to say, Archie turned up his nose at something he couldn't pronounce, and he demanded his bacon and eggs. Daughter Gloria watched with disbelief as her mother dumped the souffle in the garbage and scurried. Back and forth trying to appease her husband's anger. Goya finally snarled out a reply, submitting to him, that's what she's doing, submitting to her ruler, her lord and master. To which Archie replied, well, ain't that a nice way of saying it? He thought that was all about good. We have a great model. If we use the Trinity as our model, we see that there is equality among the members of the Godhead. Father, Holy Spirit, and Son. There are three equal members who have different functions in the creative, redemptive program. of. In the same manner, the husband and wife are personal equals with different functions within God's plan for the family. Neither does submission mean that husbands should make all the important decisions in a relationship. Husbands, if you are making any important decisions without the advice of your wife, you're asking for trouble. God did not put this woman in your life so that you could ignore her her advice, and her input. Mutual submission, then, means that decisions are made by both partners for unselfish reasons. When disagreement occurs, the husband does not automatically have the deciding vote. In such cases, one partner may grant the other's choice, or they, both, they may both agree to reject both options. One final thing, and that is that submission is limited. It is a limited submission, paralleling the limited submission that a Christian gives to the delegated authority of government. Wives are called to follow, but they're not called to follow into sin, they're not called to follow into foolishness, and they're not called to follow into harm of any kind nor does some submission imply passiveness on the part of the wife. The ideal wife, portrayed in Proverbs 31, does not sit around at home all day waiting for her husband's command or for his permission to carry out the duties of her day. She actively pursues the good of her home under the umbrella of her husband's protection. Now notice what it says about what we are to do. It is fitting to the Lord. Now, as I pointed out, some critics say that Paul's advice is too bound up in the first century, that it's out of date, that it's not relevant for today. If anything, just the opposite is true. Paul is turning upside down the cultural expectations of his world. The question, according to Paul, is not, is this fitting, as in, is this fitting culturally? But is this fitting to the Lord? It is the Lord that determines what is right and what is wrong. Something can be culturally acceptable, such as seems to be the case in our current views on homosexuality and homosexual marriage. It can be deemed culturally acceptable, but not fitting behavior for a Christian. This implies that the wife's submission to her husband is part of her obedience to the Lord. And the reward comes not from her husband, but from the Lord. Whether or not she's ever adequately appreciated by her husband or not, her reward comes from the Lord. Therefore, submission is a duty that the wife owes because the Lord deserves it, not because her husband deserves it. Which brings us to how we put this in practice in our daily life, the obligation of respect. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33, Paul says, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul touched on a need in men's lives two centuries ago that marriage counselors are just now getting a hold of. The greatest emotional need of women is love and security, and the greatest need of men is respect. And the greatest emotional need that husbands have is the respect of their wives. So how does one go about showing respect to their husband? Ladies, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Nobody's respect means more to your husband than yours. So what does it mean? It means not correcting your husband in public. That works both ways, by the way. But men have fragile egos. You talk about his good points to others, you be his cheerleader not his critic and while we're looking at it we need to understand criticism makes men defensive admiration makes men energized and motivated a man needs his wife to be his most enthusiastic supporter it means sharing your feelings without attacking that makes men defensive and when we're defensive we withdraw Turning to us for help is better than attacking us. Men have a a natural inclination to rescue and defend and a natural inclination to fight when we're attacked. Let me give you an example. Don't tell a man that he is insensitive for not taking out the garbage. Tell him how helpful it would be if he would take the garbage out. Don't replay their failures. Men don't want to be reminded over and over of the mistakes they've made. They have a drive to be successful. So underscore where they do well rather than pointing out where they do poorly. This sounds almost like you're dealing with a child, but reinforce positive behavior. Say thank you when a man holds a door for you. Thank you when he stands to give you a seat. It really is puzzling sometimes today for you to open a door for a woman. I think it really offends some of them. Thank you, I'm capable of opening the door myself. I think we need to encourage courtesy and kindness by applauding it when we see it. Let men know when they're doing something right. Secondly, let's look at the command to the men. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be bitter toward them. Another thing that you may not understand culturally. Most people in the ancient world did not expect a marriage to be grounded in love. Most marriages in that day and age were arranged By their families, sometimes while the people were still children. For one to find love in marriage was a stroke of good fortune, but it was not considered the basis of the institution. But in a Christian marriage, the husband who has himself experienced being loved by God was expected. Indeed, commanded to love his wife in the same way. So we have, first of all, the command to love. Husbands, love your wives. Now, the love that is spoken here is very specific. The Greek language is very specific where the English language is not specific. When we say, I love, you can say, I love potatoes, I love my dog, and I love my wife, and use the same word. In Greek, they had different words that had different meanings for different kinds of love. Eros is the um, romantic kind of love, sexual kind of love. But that's not what's spoken of here. What's spoken of here is the God kind of love, the same kind of love that Jesus showed as he went on the cross and died for your sin, agape love. This calls for love at all times and under all conditions. The successful marriage is based on love. And since love is commanded, it's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. Now, romantic love can lead to marriage, but it does not sustain it for very long. It's much easier to feel romantic love for someone when you don't live with them. When you do live with them, it becomes more difficult. Christ demonstrated the kind of sacrificial love that the husband is expected to exercise. When it is properly expressed, this kind of sacrificial love balances the respectful submission of the wife. The wife is willing to yield to husband's leadership if that husband is willing to give up everything to care for his wife and his family. Within the framework of mutual submission, but fulfilling the specific roles given to each, the husband and the wife each put aside selfish interests for the good of the marriage and the family. While love is described here in the image of giving your life for another, there is a more everyday and practical application. What we love gets our priority. How prone men are to take their wives for granted. We look to our li- to our wives when we are hungry, when we need companionship, and when we have nothing else to do. They need to know that they are at the top of our list, not the bottom. Our wives are to get our priority. Once again, we find in Ephesians a more detailed, expanded explanation. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 28. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, so he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Verse 33. Nevertheless, that each one of you in particular So love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This love is realistic. You know, Jesus doesn't have any false illusions about who we are. He knew our faults and he loves us in spite of them. He did not wait until we attained some certain standard. He loved us as we were. In the same way, men are to love their wives for who they are, not who we wish they would be. So what kind of things can men do to love their wives? Men at this point, I would at least pretend to be paying attention. Look for ways to demonstrate that you honor your wife. Generally, this means not drooling over other women, not talking about how other women, how good their cooking is compared to your wife, not insulting her, even in jest. Men do not realize how we dishonor our wives when we go up to someone who's getting married and say, oh, you have my sympathy. Do you see how dishonoring it is for our wife when we tell some young man, well, you better enjoy your freedom now because when you get married, do you see how that makes our wives sound? Notice and comment on the things that she does to enrich your life. Thank her for a good meal. Notice how nice the house looks. Usually we only say something when the house looks like a disaster. When something looks like it's exploded in the living room. You know, that sounds like scolding. We don't like it. Neither do they. Give your wife quality time. That's generally longer than commercials. And even longer than the halftime of a football game. It means being willing to do the things that she wants to do in order to spend time with her. You may find great interest in Hobby Lobby. Find out what interests her and share some of those interests in order just to be with her. The last thing is the requirement not to be harsh. The second part of verse 19, can be translated do not be harsh with them as it is in the NIV and RSV, or do not be bitter with them as it is in the New King James Version in the Holman Bible. Sulking, fuming, grumbling, or worse, lashing out in verbal or physical violence, regardless of the provocation, real or imagined, is strictly forbidden. I want to close with this illustration. <clears throat> Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during World War II. He was arrested and placed in a German concentration camp for his criticism of Hitler and his regime. He wrote, a classic called The Cost of Discipleship. While Bonhoeffer was in prison, he received a letter from a young woman who was contemplating getting married. She wasn't sure that marriage was such a good idea during such troubling and difficult times. Bonhoeffer's reply is a beautiful statement about marriage. He says, is there anything more beautiful in life than a young couple clasping hands and pure hearts in the path of marriage? Can there be anything more beautiful than young love? Yes, there is a more beautiful thing. It's the sight of an old man and an old woman finishing their journey together on that path. Their hands are gnarled, but they're still clasped. Their faces are seamed, but they're still radiant. Their hearts are physically bowed and tired, but still strong with love and devotion for one another. Yes, there is a more beautiful thing than young love, old love. Let's pray. Father, you've given us a, a goal that's very difficult. It's A lot easier to talk about Christianity than it is to live it. And certainly we can't live it without you. If there's one in this place tonight, today that has not placed their faith and trust in you, and Father, I pray that you'd speak to their hearts, help them to see that they're a sinner just like all the rest of us. That there is no way that they can save themselves, no way that they can justify themselves into heaven. But they can receive what you've already provided for them on the cross of Calvary. Lord, if there's one in that condition, I pray that they'd understand that they could do that right here and right now. Father, we have people in all phases of marriage in this congregation, some who have just begun the journey, some who have been married for a very, very long time. Help us, Lord, to complete the journey together. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to undergird those young couples and stand beside them and and help them. I pray that you'd help us to be a good reflection of our relationship with you through our relationships with each other. Father, we ask, Lord, that you'd be with us during this time of invitation, and we just pray that you'd have your will and your way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.